Buzzkills, the show that supports Fox News aborting a 2,808 week old baby. Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Liz Winstead, and I am joined by my co hosts, Moji Alamodeel. Hello, and Marie Khan. Hello, all. Coming up in today's show, Moji and I talk about Black feminism and what we can do about the racist family planning structures with director and founder of Black Feminist Future. Harris Thatcher. Plus, comedian and writer Sarah Schaefer joins from her car to talk about life and miniatures. I mean, <laughs> that is a detour I am here for, for sure. But before all that, we have some chatting to do and some news to get to. So we haven't been together in a while, y'all. Yeah, it feels like it's been months. I know. Yeah. It might just be weeks. Yeah, because someone can't just manage to stay in the U.S. long enough. Moji living my dream. I am a woman of South America. Uh, not really, but I'm uh, adopting it. <laughs> it's adopting me. I'm yeah. What are you yes. talking about, Marie? You also like were gallivanting around Panama having the time of your life. Yes, that's true. One trip for a set amount of time. Moji, <laughs> Moji meanwhile, is fine dining and literally taking those practices to the U.S. Oh my gosh. I went to my favorite um, restaurant in Cartagena, um, Celele. <laughs> Colombia for everybody. Moji chronically loves going there. They make my favorite drink, which is called Mama Africa. And last time I went, I didn't take a picture of the recipe. So I wasn't quite sure where to start and recreating it. Because even though Marie likes to believe I'm in Cartagena every other week, it's less than that. And one of the first steps is fat washing gin, which sounds insane. And it basically is you put some gin and some fats, like I use coconut oil, but apparently some people use sesame oil or like olives and you let it sit for a day or so. And then you strain it out and it's supposed to make the gin velvety. So we'll see how that works out for me. I'm straining it after this pod. Oh, so you haven't tried it yet? Not, I mean, I tried it in Cartagena, but not in my apartment in New York. No. So <laughs> this sounds awesome. It's like when we had, um, I had a drink here in Brooklyn um, that was buttered rye. Mm. And I, it must be the same kind of thing. And I wonder, is there, did you find a recipe? Can we throw this in the show notes? Because I want to try instilling fats into my alcohol. That's literally what I did. It was two parts alcohol, one part fat, a day or so of letting it sit. Um, you can use any fat, but it says if you use animal fats, you got to use that shit real quick. So, oh, that would make sense. Uh, but if you use uh, vegetable fats like coconut oil, I think it'll store fine in your refrigerator for like a week or two. I just, I didn't use a whole lot. So hopefully it's just like, you know, post-work cocktails today worth of fat wash gin. You know, I'm sure you're going to read about it and like the best way to do it is take two, you know, two gallons of coconut oil, you know, like that whole thing where it's like, why does it taste so good? Because it's made entirely of fat. Exactly. Well, you're supposed to strain out the fat, but, you know, obviously some of it will stay there. It, it lingers. Liquids. It lingers. <laughs> so I invented a thing, I think, but I'm sure it's really a thing where um, I have been on this Noom diet for like. Um, two months. I'm just kind of following this food pattern and doing all this stuff. And 
like olive oil is really a no-no because it's just like high in fat. And so I made a dressing y'all with a tablespoon of lemon hummus and then garlic and a shit ton of white wine vinegar. And it tastes like Caesar salad dressing and it doesn't have a ton of the fat. So if you want a creamy dressing, like oh Dijon mustard, lemon hummus, white wine vinegar, and garlic. And it's like kind of Caesar salad-y, but it's fucking delicious. Also, it seems vegan-y because it doesn't have the fish that you would have in a regular season. Yeah, and it's so dressing. And it's so good. And you just put a shit ton of cracked pepper on it. I was like, not missing a thing. So nice. that is Moji. Moji's buttering up her booze, which I'm here for. But I am um, I'm trying to find a healthy alternative that's not gross because I'm not a healthy alternative person whatsoever. But I'm just throwing that into the universe. I'll throw I'll make up a recipe and put it in the show notes. But nice. it was really good. Yeah. I like getting some good into the universe. Yes. Well, crappers are producing at a rapid pace. And here's Molly to drop a steaming pile of this week's news on you. Thank you so much, friends. Uh, You know, someone must be eating their fiber because the shit is coming out on the regular these days. (laughs) Let's start with North Dakota, where this week a total abortion ban was signed and is now in effect. This is an only slightly tweaked version of their ban that was already blocked by courts. So they're just like bedazzling the same turd. No matter how you dress it up, it's still a piece of shit, right? I swear to God, the amount of energy these states spend on these stupid bans could power a megachurch for a week. Like in Kansas, where lawmakers have overridden a veto by the governor. So now Kansas is the recipient of three new heinous abortion laws, an abortion reversal mandate, a born alive bill, that's in quotes, and an insurance restriction. And remember, Kansans voted last year to reject a proposed amendment to the state constitution that would have eliminated the right to abortion, which is like going out to eat, saying you are deathly allergic to fish, and then the waiter bringing you a trio of fish dips because he knows what's best for you. On to the next biggest (laughs) allergen of America, Texas. A Texas woman is (laughs) suing the state for nearly dying from sepsis because she was denied an abortion. This week, she spoke at a Senate hearing and did not mince words. She told her senators the truth, that it's their fault that she almost died. And you know what's really cool is they actually apologized. I'm just kidding. (laughs) They did not even show up to her testimony because when the going gets tough, they get going to Cancun because it's spring break always. (laughs) (laughs) Those were your little turdlets for the week. I hope you enjoyed them. Uh, If you haven't seen the clip of this woman, it's great. And we'll put a link to it in the show notes. But it's just so disgusting how... She's from Texas. And then um, Ted Cruz and John Cornyn, her senators, couldn't even fucking show up. Even show up. And, you know, later when they were asked about the testimony, John Cornyn had the balls to say that, oh, wow, that case sounds pretty bad. She should probably sue the doctor for medical malpractice. Mm. You mean the doctor that's following the law? Exactly, Moji. Great point. (laughs) It's like mandating that you put razors in apples and then when people slice their tongues off, say that they should probably sue the farmers. Oh my God, it's true. You know, when we posted that story on social media this week, LifeSite News, one of those trash anti-abortion websites came in and said the same thing. She should be suing the doctors for not following the law. And it's like, you should 
fucking just shut up. I can't, can you, it's, isn't Texas the state that successfully sued the federal government when they said what you can't do is what they did to that woman? Yeah. Same state, same state. It's great. Things are great. Molly, thank you. A pleasure as always. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thanks, Molly. (laughs) Thank you, Molly. Now let's get to our top stories and we kick it off with this unemployed fop goblin. Warren Jeff didn't marry underage girls. No, he's in in prison for facilitation of child rape. Whatever the hell that means, the, the rapist in this case has made a lifelong commitment to live and take care of the person. So it is a little different. Do you think abortion is a wonderful, affirming act you feel so proud of? If you feel that way, you are promoting an ancient religious right called human sacrifice. But if you're telling me that abortion is a positive good, well, you're arguing for child sacrifice, obviously. That it's okay to kill a child after the child has been born. Cory Booker believes that abortions are a vital strategic resource like oil or uranium. Anybody who answers my trophy wife is my favorite possession is my hero. I don't give a shit. I'm voting for the guy. She just does seem a little cunty. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Tucker. Wow. You know, we've been inundated with hot takes on why Fox would fire Tucker Carlson because it clearly has no qualms about what he says on the air. So in most of the analysis about his shitty self, we haven't seen many deep dives into Tucker's contribution to creating the extremist views on abortion that have emerged and led to this healthcare hellscape we're currently living in. Yes. Liz, one of the most egregious contributions Tuck has made is this in general, the disparaging comments on a public, on a major, you know, media outlet as much as we don't want it to be, disparaging comments and discounting the effect of abortion bans having on actual people. In July, we saw in the mm-hmm. news that a 10-year-old in the Midwest and needed to get abortion care. And it was all over. He claimed this was not true. He has downplayed Roe being overturned, claiming on, again, his national platform that abortion isn't illegal, folks, not nationwide, that there's nothing banning people from traveling to other states, which we directly see. Like, we are not stupid. Excuse us. Does he not see the aid and abet language? Oh, my God, Marie, that must make you it's insane. Just, it's not even gaslighting. Does it's, like, this I, work? it's just like a will, will for ignorance of everything that's going on around you and the people that are saying, hey, I'm sorry, this is affecting me. And then last and not least, he doubled down on trigger laws, those laws that just right off the bat ban, in this case, abortion, claiming that people will get to live with the laws they want. No, especially not when it's a law from the 18 fucking hundreds. Also, especially not with gerrymandering. Oh my God, Moji and I, this is an offshoot, but we were listening to a take earlier and they talked about how if you give other people the right to vote, it takes away your right. Like literally that advancing voting voting rights reduces your own vote as a white man. Basically, like it's pie. Like it's pie. Voting is pie. I know. And you know, I have to say the only time that that actually comes into play is abortion bans. Because every time you are giving a fetus a right, you are literally taking a right away yep. from the person who is every pregnant. single time. Like that is that that's that's where it comes in, right? And you know, Tucker's got a whole history of doing that. And it's really dangerous to downplay it because it gives all these people this you can go have an abortion someplace like everyone's got a car and money to just go travel around and have abortion someplace and it's it's literally co- it's covering up crimes that 10 year old an arrest did happen recently related and we to to the harm they caused and we really hope they get justice right and because he he, he does these like kind of punches where it's like deny that these bans are harmful right 
and then talk about people who have abortions in the most horrific oh, ways that possible. is fully his jam. He loves to say that people who support abortions are ghouls. And we heard it in the clip are literally cultists practicing the ancient right of child sacrifice. These are words he said, we just heard him say. And I just want to remind everyone that a ghoul is uh, defined as an evil spirit. So what he is saying, and he says Democrats want all the time, is that Democrats are evil spirits. <laughs> right. And I think that he was repeating that human sacrifice, child sacrifice. We just played two clips of that, but that is a narrative that he purports over and over again. In fact, the last clip that we played was from the last time he did public speaking just a week and a half ago at a fundraiser for the Heritage Foundation. And what you don't hear in that clip is people cheered yep. when he said it. And so, you know, knowing that he's laying this out week after week after week after week after week. What happens is, and I don't think we can say this enough, is it redefines personhood for us, right? He doesn't recognize trans folks at all as humans. So I'm going to lay out just using the word woman because he says over and over again, also that uh, women are property and women are trophies, as he said there. And we need to remember that when you say that shit enough times, it becomes normalized and becomes part of the fabric of what we believe in our society of who has rights and who doesn't. And that results in basically dehumanizing us and in fact, reclassifying our humanity and placing us into a category of we're barbaric because we are believe in child sacrifice. We're incompetent because we get pregnant willy nilly and whores. So that makes us property that needs to be monitored, regulated, and punished by the government. And his kind of rhetoric makes that shit okay. And look at where we're at with these laws. And again, I want to remind you, he was, until he was fired, the most popular uh, host on Fox News. So like, it's not like on cable news. On cable news. So like, it's not like no one was listening to him. So many people were listening to him. So many people. And the thing that I fear the most is that he's going to even become like more popular and create this kind of Alex Jones world for himself on the internet where he's uncensored and doesn't have to listen to anybody and he can just say all this shit. And I, I just fear for that. I also joked briefly that uh, let's hurry up and do this podcast about him before he runs for president. <laughs> because then we can't talk about him if he's running for office. I hate that. And, and you know, it's a one-two punch, right? Because we have these commentators uh, who are creating a public, you know, frenzy around this. And then that public frenzy is demanding politicians to create laws against this shit and politicians to then nominate judges who are going to find ways to have our oppression be constitutional. And Marie, um, we've heard about so much this week around the judges, but you're going to lay out how uh, one knuckle dragger that isn't getting as much attention as he should, is emerging this week in the news. Yes, it definitely feels like we're in the era of corrupt judicial leadership. And who's ahead is really hard to say. Thomas Gorsuch, our favorite friend, Justice Kegstand. But what today <laughs> we need to hone in on is the judge in the Miffy case, Matthew Kasmerick. He has so much hidden bullshit, he should never have been confirmed. So starting right off the bat, he was born in Florida. And I really don't want to say people that are born in Florida shouldn't get to hold these judicial appointments. But I, I think there should be maybe greater tests involved. 
He grew up in the suburbs of Fort Worth, Texas, and his church, which interestingly enough, the West Freeway Church of Christ, it's located in White Settlement, Texas. That's a real place. You can find it on a map. Mm -hmm. And that's a real name. He grew up in a very conservative space. His mother is a scientist, also worked at a fake clinic. And the church they also attended is famous in the news because back in 2019, a gunman came in, killed two of the parishioners, and then a bunch of others that had to bring their Glocks on them on a Sunday unloaded into that person. And we also found it in some digging, this is public, that his sister was even scorned during her high school pregnancy, so much to the point apparently that she felt that she needed to leave for a maternity ranch. Wow. Um, And that was pretty, I feel like that was pretty formative for her. Uh, His sister, I think the same sister was quoted as saying, he's really passionate about the fact that you can't preach pro-life and do nothing. And truthfully, he's phoning in. He is even on the ranch's board and has, well, was on the ranch's board and was a chairperson of the board until he was a a federal judge. You know, Texas loves those ranches. Remember that we did that story last year about that big ass ranch that's like, has like a man cave Mm -hmm. for the, for the inseminators. And work requirements. You have to do labor. Like maintain the farm camp. (laughs) Oh, And he basically like committed to this as life, right? Like he went to this deeply religious college called Abilene Christian College. And then he also went for law school, went to the University of Texas. And it's reported that he studied legal foundations for abortion rights. So he knew exactly what he wanted to do and learned all the things that he had to do to graduate from college and join a religious, lawyerly, think tank crazy place called the First Liberty Institute. I call it a legal crazy place. You want to call it a law firm. Go ahead. You can say whatever you want. I'm going to say it's not. And a lot of people know about Alliance for Defending Freedom and, you know, the Thomas More Society. But this First Liberty Institute is the largest organization in the nation dedicated to exclusively defending religious freedom for all Americans. Moji, just tell folks some of the cases that they are proudly have won at the Supreme Court or are taking to the Supreme Court. Oh my God, they're definitely doing their Googles full time. They did this, the 50 yard line case, which is when a high school teacher was basically praying at the 50 yard line, took that to the SCOTUS and won. Um, They did a case where Basically, people wanted the right to not take vaccines, and they took that to the Supreme Court and won. And they did another case in Oregon where a lesbian couple was trying to get a cake made, and basically the proprietors were like, we don't do same-sex weddings here. And they took it to Supreme Court, and we'll see. They love those cake cases, man. They just love our racist baker. They'll take any case on. I guess what we're trying to do is set the foundation for where this person comes from, because as we get to the current controversies around him, all of this shit was public knowledge and every single person who voted for him could have looked this up. And so now at least one Google, yeah, one Google. So it leads us to the controversies that are happening now. When you are nominated to be a judge, all the things that you have done have to be revealed in your confirmation, right? Any interview, any article that you've done before has to be given to the Senate, right? And he did two radio interviews that apparently he forgot. And when CNN reached out, he was like, oh, they didn't show up in my search in the media. So let's just listen to a clip from one of the radio interviews that he gave in 2014 um, that really lays out kind of his whole whole vibe. Yeah, and I just want to make very clear, uh, people 
people who experience a same-sex attraction uh, are not responsible uh, individually or solely uh, for, for the atmosphere uh, of, of, of the sexual revolution. You know, it, it's, a, it's a long time coming. You know, it, it, it came after no-fault divorce. It came uh, after uh, we uh, implemented very permissive policies on contraception. You know, the sexual revolution has, has gone through several phases. We just happen to be at the phase now where same-sex marriage is at the fore. Okay, dude, here's the thing. He forgot he did that interview and the, he was asked to come on and literally the, the, if this episode was called The Homosexual Agenda. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sign me up. And uh, yeah, he he revealed that agenda constantly during his confirmation hearings and still he won. I mean, I mean, still they they put him forth. So I don't even understand. It's wild to me because literally when you know recently when i think it was martin and murkowski who's like i feel duped and i'm like were you listening to his confirmation because they ask questions like um what did you write this such and such a thing in the amicus brief brief in obergefeld and he was like i don't remember yeah. that i'm like guys these are his words like was she sleeping through his confirmation and to fall back on this oh i can't state a personal view but we know you're going to rule on that view right you're going to force that view on us via laws And when you ask if you'd recuse yourself on topics, you have personal beliefs, you claim you have a process in that, like bullshit, bullshit. He also dropped no fault divorce in there, which by the way, I thought that emancipating yourself was part of being a human being in this country. I was this old when I discovered that uh, conservatives don't believe in no fault divorce. (laughs) You can't be a trophy wife if you can run away. No one says trophy (laughs) ex-wife. That's not, that's not a thing. And Moji, take us to the papers. Oh, my gosh. So on top of like, obviously, uh, Republicans falling asleep during his confirmation hearings, um, the other things he didn't (laughs) disclose were these were papers that he'd written. Right. In specific, in particular, one in 2017, he'd actually submitted a draft for a paper uh, at the Review of Law and Politics, which is a conservative law review. And. Several months after he'd re- he'd submitted the draft, he like sent them a message like, "Hey, could you um change my name on this to my colleagues at First Liberty, um because uh, I can't talk about it right now." But what the person who got the email didn't know was that he already had had his original conversations about potentially becoming a federal judge. He was just waiting to talk to the the White House. And apparently he did not want this terrible paper, which essentially says that like protections that trans people and abortion seekers should have from doctors shouldn't exist. And people of faith should be able to deny treatments to them. It's really funny that his name was only a placeholder until he was almost getting a lifetime appointment. That absolutely disgusting. I, I would say too, it's deceiving. To take your name off page, like to me, people can always do those weird workarounds with like, you know, we're going to talk in a minute about his financial dealings, you know, people can always do weird workarounds with that and, and talk their way out of it. But to literally write papers and then read them and say, holy shit, they're never going to let me on the court if my name is on this. So I'm going to find some stooges to put their names on them. And think no one's going to know, like, dude, you can go back and look at drafts. And the editor basically said, like, I've never seen this before. (laughs) Like someone coming to like redact their name in this way. But they also did it. And his name doesn't exist on the paper. And someone just did two Googles this month and find out about it. And and found it. And it really just lays out horrific 
feelings on abortion, horrific feelings about, um, you know, he he says horribly disparaging things about trans people. He talks about contraception as not a right. Like it is really bad. And um, yeah, maybe, maybe you wouldn't have been confirmed, but then there, so, so we have the radio, we have the papers, and then we have the icing on the shit cake, these weird financial uh, non-disclosures. Yes. We learned about some really egregious redactions of close to his entire financial life, which if you want to make sure someone will judge without a conflict of interest, you really need to know where their money is from. Yeah. It came out that Sneaky Matt was not just hiding his ultra conservative views in plain sight. He's also been hiding his net worth, right? Like generally federal judges are called to disclose how much money they have and more importantly, where that money comes from. Like you said, Marie, to make sure that citizens know that they're where their influences and commitments are. Like you don't want a Walmart judge, a judge whose fortune is is tied to Walmart ruling on your Walmart case, right? That's just not fair. And so 96% of judges are pretty transparent about their financial records. It's actually only four, less than 4% that redact their information. And Matt, it seems, is one of the 4%. He might be all of the 4%. Yes. We specifically think this means that about 80% of his fortune, and this is truly a fortune, between 2020 and 2021 in annual disclosures, he noted he held between 5 million and 25 million. So can you say that again loudly? 5 million and 25 million. Like if that was me, A, I would brag way more about that number. But also, Marie, they don't have to say specifics. They can give Massive. And this is, quote unquote, common stock of a company. And this is where the redaction happened. He didn't disclose the name of that company, despite the fact that federal law only allows certain types of redactions that can endanger a judge or a family member. So we were talking. And what do we think he's hiding? Spoiler alert. The answer might be public stock, netting him betwixt 100,000 and a cool million over a year. Each year? A year. And we know this because, like you said, Moji, you can Google things on the internet. Back in 2017, Judge K publicly acknowledged owning public stock worth $2.9 million. And math nerds, those amazing people, they know what that stock is worth today. And it's more than $2.9 million. Right. And the thing that's so wild is with Publix, you know, you think, oh, it's a grocery store chain, whatever, you know, and the only way their stock is in public, the only way that he has the stock is because his grandma worked there for 25 years and then he inherited the stock. But if you've been following it, all the news, Publix, like heiress is a nightmare. She's this woman named Julie Fancelli. She's 72 years old. And it, she has given 50 grand to Moms for Liberty that, and they're the ones literally based in Florida. They're the ones behind pushing all of this uh, CRT shit, ban- book banning, censorship. They don't want to have any books about slavery or race or LGBTQ people and all of this shit. And they are the ones driving home all of this shit in schools. But also this bitch is the biggest donor of the January 6th rally, 300K to Women for America First, 150,000 to the nonprofit arm of the Republican Attorneys General Association, who paid for all these massive robocalls to tell people to stop the steal. And on the same day she gave to uh, Women for America and those attorneys general, she gave $200,000 to the Florida Tea Party Express so that they could get social media and radio ads out um, urging supporters of Trump to get to the rally. And the Washington Post 
Washington Post is saying that she's obsessed with Alex Jones and leading up to January 6th, she was emailing her family and her relatives and her friends um, links to Alex Jones talk shows. And it's hilarious because Publix was releasing these statements like, you know, it's troubling that she's doing this and she isn't involved in our day to day. And it's like this bitch is the heiress to this and can't stop, won't stop, won't stop apparently on the oppression. And so, you know, that that is why he is it's Publix and why he's hiding it. Yep, it was a long rabbit hole that we went down and it is a lot. But I think it's important for you to know just how deep and far as people are talking about Clarence Thomas and Gorsuch this week and looking at all their shit that it's just going lower and lower and lower and that the accountability bar is really low for the people who actually decide our fates. And which brings us to the current date of where we're at. As always, these stories will be in the show notes. And we remind you the best up to the minute resource on accessing abortion care and funding for your care is INeedAnA.com. And now I'm really excited for our next guest, Marie, who's with us. Harris Hatcher is a Black, queer, visionary feminist who's been organizing toward liberation for 20 years. She founded Black Feminist Future as a movement incubator and is here with us now. Welcome, Paris. Hi. Hey, y'all. Thanks for having me. How y'all doing? We are great. Good. Pretty good. That's good. That's good. (laughs) I love to hear that. (laughs) We are really, really happy to have you joining us on the pod. And I wanted to get started and dive right into and have you tell us How and why did Black Feminist Future get started? And what is the Black Feminist Agenda? Yes. So again, thanks for having me. My name is Paris Hatcher. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I have the privilege of being the founder and the executive director of Black Feminist Future. We are nine years old this year, which is so exciting. And we were started um, because I come out of reproductive justice organizing And when I was a part of that space, as well as doing organizing in the racial justice and um, LGBTQ space, I really saw the need to have a stronger, sharper analysis and movement focused on feminisms, but in particular, Black feminisms specifically. The attacks that we have been seeing for such a long time, most people can understand that the racial or the racist intent behind them, but oftentimes people are not as sharp around the sexist and misogynistic, and we would say even misogynoir, Mm -hmm. behind some of these attacks. So hence why we started Black Feminist Future. We were a lot of, like a lot of organizations that were inspired around the tragic murder of Mike Brown during those uprisings um, in 2014. We also were thinking about how Black women, girls, and gender um, expansive people, in particular Black trans women, were being murdered by the police and no one was coming to our defense. So in that vein, in the necessity to uplift the racial and gender implications of our lives, I started Black Feminist Future. I love this and I love the name of your organization. Um, But when I was Reading about it, I was like, womanist and Black feminist are terms that Black women have embraced that basically recognize that our fight is intersectional. Can you talk about the nuances of these two identities overall? And in the context of Black feminist future, the way you use them, are they siblings? Are they cousins? Are they friends? Oh, I love that. And I didn't forget the question about the agenda, but I I want to, this question I love. So 
when I was thinking about this, this is a, a common point that folks like to, to engage with me. So like, are you a womanist or what? What do you think about this? And I think that womanism, a term coined by Alice Walker, who we need to call in and have a really important conversation mm-hmm. around how she's aligning around transphobia right now, because we don't need our elders to be aligned in that way. And also gave a helpful solution, I would say, an intervention in 1978 in the landscape of a really white feminist movement. But I would really say that when we think about womanism, I think of it as like a, a cultural tool or a cultural intervention, not necessarily the same as a organizing or a movement building tool. So I think that when she was talking about womanism, again, as a really powerful way to really reckon with the reality of what was uh, a, a really white women's movement that was erasing the ongoing contributions of Black feminists, I think of it as a cultural intervention. However, and I and people were organized around the identity or the term, maybe, but really at the same time, folks were really organizing behind the political identity and really thinking about what you talked about, the intersections of our lives as Black feminists. So at the same time, when Alice Walker coins the term womanism, you know, there's Black feminists who are organizing the National Black Feminist Organization. There are Black feminists who are proudly and out Black feminists who are still using the term as an organizing and movement building tool. So that's a distinction. I see them as really mm-hmm. connected. Um, I'm not mad at anybody who's like, I'm a womanist. I think there's no need to pit us against each other. I think that they serve different purposes in our journey to, to Black liberation. And yeah, so cousins. Cousins, okay. Yeah. I mean, I was like sibling, cousins, friends, you know, like definitely yeah. not enemies. Not enemies, not opposing. But I can say this is that I wholeheartedly understand when Black women are like, I'm not, I can't identify as a feminist because of the racist history of feminism. I get it. And what I retort back with is that that's not our feminism. We have Black feminisms. We have our own legacy, our own trajectory. And the more that you are able to surface that, like we have a whole tool on our website called Fractals that talks about our ever-ending, ever-learning movement for racial and gender liberation in this country and beyond. It's hard to just say feminisms is a white woman thing because it just ain't. It isn't at all. Yeah. I feel like personally I've used those, yeah. those both of those terms. I've called myself a feminist and a womanist at different points in my life and in my journey. Yeah. And also the womanist piece, there's a huge body, incredible body of work around womanist theology. So I think that's the other piece too, is that womanism also is used in the context of theology work. People who are looking to unpack the sexist and racist history and also the brutality that of Christianity in particular and how do womanists, how do black women find themselves and locate themselves in a liberatory theology, which is called womanism as well, or womanist, womanist scholarship. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about the programs of Black Feminist Future, which I obviously abbreviated to BFF. <laughs> yes, that's what we call it too. BFFs. 
And our members are BFFs. You're our BFFs. So can you tell us a little about the programs? I know you started a leadership cultivation in 2019, and you have a bunch of other things that I'd love for you to tell us about. Okay, great. So one of the things I'm really excited about is that we have a membership. Our membership is for Black women, girls, and gender expansive people in the U.S., and we also have members across the world. And as a member, we really, as one of our core strategic priorities, is we talk about building and nourishing and developing fierce Black feminist leaders who are able to take action in their own lives. So we see that as like the first step. Oftentimes, we get activated around issues in our own lives. We're also able to take um, action for issues in their community. So thinking about their family and even like their neighborhood or people they're in community with, and then are able to take action in broader society. So our membership space is a sacred space to do that. And I really am obsessed with all of our members, folks who have signed up to be with us, to throw down with us. A key part of our work is, and one of the ways that we see misogynoir, which is the particular hatred of Black women and girls, and trans misogynoir is like a particular hatred of Black trans people, in particular Black trans women, is through our, our abortion work. And so we have a whole campaign we call Abortionist Freedom. We really believe that it is time for us to reclaim, right, our the values that we have around abortion in particular is important in our life, that it's around being able to access our freedom, the ability for us to decide what's best for us and our families, and that we do not need bans. We actually need more, right? We need more. We need more abortion mm-hmm. access. And so our abortionist freedom work, which is held by our Constellation Hive. And our Constellation Hive is a group of members within our general membership who are focused on reproductive health rights and justice, which is amazing um, and exciting. And we do a variety of political education events. We do fun events. We also have a, a transnational project called the Okra Collaborative, where we work with Black feminists from across the African diaspora to really build relationships and connections because we know the issues that we're fighting in the U.S. are not just specific to the U.S. They're interconnected. You name it, we're working on it. We're doing something about it. I love that you're speaking to this interconnectedness. We see this shit now, right? Where we say you're a red state. We we don't care about you anymore, right? And it's like, we are totally intersecting here amongst ourselves in this massive land space that was colonized. And we know that same, like you said, that same environment and space, those same things are being done overseas. I wanted to ask you, I come from a, the space of being with a practical support abortion fund, uh, Midwest Access Coalition. We're out of the Midwest and we're supporting folks with the travel, child care, food lodging costs. One of the areas, yeah. one of your programmatic focuses for BFF that I really loved was the defund family planning. Mm. That focus. And I was really hoping you could talk about that because this is this is like beautiful to me. This is, yeah, I don't like what Margaret Sanger did either, but I also want abortion for my communities. Right. So I wonder if you could talk about that, the defund planning, planning piece, how the goal of this is, I know, a direct quote, dismantling the gendered racism that exists within reproductive care as we see it right now in the U.S. Oh, that's so juicy. So we started that uh, work with the National Birth Equity Collaborative, MBEC, a couple of years ago. And in particular, we really wanted to put a bright light on what you just talked about, the, the racist and gendered um, oppression that exists within the family planning model. So a couple of things I want to bring up. Number one, when people talk about family planning, 
they abortion is not included in family planning. So that's number one. And that's why we actually should rarely use it or never use it at all. Two, another piece is that so much of the rhetoric and our understanding around family planning is rooted in ideas of population control and eugenics. But in particular around this population control, that if we give communities not what they need, but only a piece of the solution, which is seen as like birth control, that it will solve all issues. It does not take into consideration the fact that families actually want to plan their families, and that can mean children and having more of them, right? So the only family planning means that it's having access to birth control is incomplete. And having that being sold as like the silver bullet, in particular for Black communities, is incomplete. It's racist. It's sexist. And it does not live into our reproductive justice values. And so hence, while we we need to abandon the family planning model as what we think is the vision that our communities really need. Yes, thank you. Thank you for for explaining and delving in there. I really think it's important that you explained it and delved it in too, because I feel like people would read that and be like, wait, what do you have against family planning? And it's like, "Mm, no, there's there's a root of racism in this. Yeah, we want reproductive justice. That's actually what we want. That's absolutely what we want. And what we deserve. Yeah. <laughs> what we deserve, yes. So coming up on June 8th to the 11th, you have an amazing gathering called Get Free, a Black Feminist Reunion. What can folks, Black folks who want to attend expect? So this is a love child. I am so excited we were together in 2020, but you know, yeah, the COVID came and is still here. But now we're finally going to be able to bring together our members and other Black feminists, Black women, girls, and gender expansive people from around the country in Baltimore, the charm city, so charming for our Black feminist reunion. I think there's like four things that folks could absolutely look forward to. So one, go to get free to connect to meet people that are working on so many different issues. Build that Rolodex, right? Get to meet and learn from people. Two, you are going to deepen your analysis and your consciousness from some of the most brilliant minds and thinkers and strategists and creatives in this country talking about Black feminisms at this time. We're going to be doing that at our plenaries, at our keynotes, at our workshops, at our our tea talks, it's going to just be so much juicy and deliciousness. Number three, come and shape the future. So we talked a little bit about, or a question was around, what's the Black feminist agenda? We're going to be really allowing our members and participants to shape the Black feminist agenda. What are the key top issues that we want to work on in advance on the national level, on policy, on narrative power? on organizing. And then fourth is to celebrate. We'll be having a North Star Gala where we're going to be celebrating Black feminist brilliance and leaders who have really made incredible contributions to the field and an awesome dance party with musical performances and DJs. So really, those are the four reasons to get free. I mean, you really don't need a reason. You don't need any reason. But if you needed one, (laughs) this is reason to be there. That sounds like such an amazing event. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. If you're not going to be there, I don't know what to I'm tell judging you myself. Yourself. You I'm need to make better plans. decisions. <laughs> I'm judging Moji. She was yes. born in Baltimore. We were literally talking about this yesterday. And I was like, that is um, my homeland. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Yes. Well, come get it. We want you. We're so happy that you were able to join us today, Paris. And before we log off, I wanted to ask you, A, how can folks who cannot attend in person the reunion, how can they support and get connected to BFF? And you mentioned the hive, the hive structure, and I know that is a component and a part of it. So how can Black folks, Black girls, gender expansive Black community, how can how can they all get connected with you if they can't show up in person necessarily? Yes. So... If you are an ally and accomplice, you are down to disrupt this culture of noir, and you want to break up with patriarchy, you can sign on to our newsletter to get updates from us. Follow us on social media, Black Feminist Future, and also become a donor to our work, yes. right? We know that Black Feminisms is for everybody. We have tools and resources to, to deepen your study. For Black women, girls, and gender expansive people who will not be able to make it, We are going to be having a virtual offering. Those tickets are going to be going live soon, but also become a member. We're always pulling in together. There's always an opportunity to learn, to build and develop. At this time, nobody can be on the sidelines. And we know that being by yourself, you have to fight isolation. So join a community, join an organization. And we hope if you're a Black woman, girl, or gender expansive person, that you join Black Feminist Future. You can follow us online, the socials. We can't wait to have you. Paris Hatcher, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a pleasure. Thank y'all. To sign up for the Get Free reunion in Baltimore, become a member of Black Feminist Future, follow them on socials, or donate to their work, check out the links in our show notes. And now, the party game that is faster than Monopoly and more fun than Taboo, Six Degrees of Abortion. This is when Moji and I take a story from the news and Liz has six chances to link it to abortion. Let's see if we can stumper this week. Moji, what do you got? I am excited. So this week, Liz, you may or may not know that Elizabeth Holmes um, of Theranos uh, had a baby. And she named her baby Invicta, which is wild. (laughs) Anyway, we would like you to, in six tries or less, link Elizabeth Holmes to abortion. Oh, really, would you? Well, it turns out we all watched the Elizabeth Holmes HBO series, or I watched it anyway. I definitely did not. uh, With (laughs) Amanda Seyfried, and she was amazing in it. And I just did a show in Toronto, and guess who was in the audience and who I met backstage? Amanda Seyfried. Oh, well, <laughs> Amanda Seyfried. So, um, and then she was really funny and talked about abortion and was totally into it. It was funny because one, I didn't know she was in the audience. And one of my jokes about um, George Santos is the only thing he hasn't claimed to be is CEO of Theranos. And so she came back and she said, I love that joke. That was so funny. So not only that, she liked one of my jokes. So there we go. I just want to say that our producer, Remy, said, Liz probably knows Amanda Seyfried some way. And I was like, I think it's going to be HBO. (laughs) Anyway, she was right. Bam! Bam! (laughs) I know. So that's it. Easy breezy. That's a fun one. I'm always excited when I win. I know it takes away your joy of beating me, but whatever. I'm going to take it. I'm taking it. (laughs) I can't. Moji, I get to do a promo about our favorite time of the year. Oh, great. I know. You know what I'm talking about, right? 
Mm-hmm, I do. It's Netroots Nation. Netroots Nation is the largest gathering of progressive activists in the country. And this year it's in Chicago, July 13th to the 15th. Your buzzkills will be there broadcasting three shows live, doing some abortion evangelizing and hoping to see you there. It is three days of cutting edge panels and training sessions to help you accomplish more with your activism and hear amazing keynote speakers from politicians, activists and organizers that always inspire Plus, there are also fun parties and networking events so you can have some fun with people you haven't seen since the before times. And who knows, if you join us at Networks this year, maybe Moji Marie and I can belt out something with you on karaoke night. Look, we all know that being in the trenches defending our freedom is exhausting. And Netroots is a great way to reset, recharge, and recommit to do the work you know we have to do. So go to NetrootsNation.org and sign up using promo code BUSKILLS and you'll get 10% off your ticket. Netroots Nation, July 13th to 17th, Chicago. All the details are in the show notes. We hope we see you there. Oh my God, it's so much fun. All the best people are there. All the best people are there. And before we continue... You all know by now that we just simply couldn't do this podcast without sponsors who have given us so much help. This week's sponsor is another podcast. Moji, tell folks about it. Tired of true crime podcasts hosted by Bud Light slurping lefties? Then you need Anatomy of a Baby Murder, the newest show from the Maximum Fundamentalist Podcast Network. Each episode, your hosts, Megan and Megan, take an abortion case ripped from the headlines and use amateur sleuthing and Christian science to bring the case to its natural conclusion that abortion is baby murder. In this week's episode, you'll meet Susan. Susan claimed that she was pro-life, but when her supposedly wanted pregnancy hit 19 weeks, Susan found out that her unborn child had an undeveloped brain, and instead of turning to the Lord, she turned to abortion. The Megans dive into Susan's motives. Did her chronic binge-watching of the Rachel Maddow show cause the bad brain? Was Susan coerced by doctors who have an anti-anti-brain bias? They ask the questions that most professionals aren't even considering and show a side of abortion that the abortion industrial complex doesn't want you to believe, that abortion is never necessary. Anatomy of a Baby Murder is available today wherever you get your QAnon podcasts. Okay. okay. <laughs> that was basically the Tucker Carlson show every less. night. Like, <laughs> it was just missing goals. It just needed goals. It just needed goals. <laughs> Joining us next, we have Emmy Award-winning comedian and writer, Sarah Schaefer. Hello, Sarah. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad we got to sync up. So right off the bat, we're in a cesspool. We know it. We read the news. You do. You read the news really well. <laughs> How are you getting out of bed every morning? Oh, you know, I... um. I have to really get my energy up and say, you know what? Fuck it. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I, you know, there's this uh, video. This is really how I'm getting through it is um, I saw this video a while back, you know, Instagram, the algorithm shows you things. And it was just this woman. I think she's um, from Europe somewhere, just skydiving. And, um, but she's, dancing like modern dance while she's flying through the air towards the earth and she's like doing these beautiful moves 
and almost like she's like walking and calm, like she's in total control of her body. And I was struck by it because it, it to me was a perfect visualization of what it feels like to be alive right now, which is like, we're <laughs> yeah. hurtling towards destruction, but why not be, be creative and artful on the way down? And so yeah. that's, that's how I'm getting through it. <laughs> I feel like you're going to have to send that link because... I'm here for it. <laughs> for a second, you're watching, you're, oh, look at that beautiful dancer. And then you realize she's falling to the earth from like 30,000 feet, you know, and um, is in total control. And, you know, it's like she's not acknowledging that the, this, you know, that she's in danger. She's, and it's, I, I very much admire her and I would never do anything like that. No, we leave that for professionals. <laughs> Yeah. You have your things you do. I have my things I do. Exactly. Also, I want to thank you for joining us from your car because that is yes. not something we get all the time. I actually apologize for that. I'm normally more professional and in a in a real place, but I'm um, traveling and there's crazy weather in Southern California. So I had to like time when I was driving a certain way. And now I'm outside of McDonald's in Kingman, Arizona. So out of the heartland. I don't know. Yeah. Do we say that about Arizona? I'm not good with geography. It depends how close Sheriff Joe is to you. <laughs> okay. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. I would say Arizona, it's not the armpit because that's Florida. <laughs> no. Yes. Um, depends on your opinions. But yeah, Kingman, Arizona, from what I can tell, is um, very red. It's a very red area. <laughs> You have made some pretty fantastic satire videos, which we love. Um, you may know this about our show or not, but we actually run on fake commercials because nobody wants to sponsor our abortion podcast here. <laughs> <laughs> also, really love your satirical commercials. Thank you. Especially the one about getting into comedy, which Thanks. apparently went viral. Uh, and it's so hilarious. How have you been able to navigate the comedy world, carve your path, and develop your own unique voice while avoiding opening for Joe Rogan because that's a feed. Yeah, it is a um, it's a choice you have to make at some point. Do you want to go into the Joe Rogan River or do you want to stay on the shore? Um, you know, I it's been a journey. I've been doing comedy for twenty years. I've tried it all. Uh, I've achieved some of my top dreams. Um, and others have eluded me. I feel very fortunate to be still hanging on by a thread, <laughs> you know. And uh, one thing I think that which I've been actually now my comedy is about this, but it's about always choosing between uh, your creative goals and like your survival business goals and like being able to pay rent and how a lot of times our business, especially in Hollywood, is not those two things are not aligned many times and mm -hmm. a lot of all, all of us are forced into those choices and some really don't care about the creative and they just want to be famous because of all of that provides and then that brings up questions of how do you maintain your integrity it's really hard you know because you're constantly being faced with choices like yeah okay i'm not going to open for joe rogan of course his fans and they wouldn't even get you <laughs> yeah you know um, okay, fine. Uh, <laughs> we're not meant to be together. But, you know, little choices you have to make along the way. There's a uh, a club that's now, you know, still booking a known sex pest. Mm -hmm. Do I want to perform there anymore? 
well, I need the stage time or, or the money. Sometimes you get paid to do these spots. There's not a comedian that doesn't have to make those moral choices constantly, whether they realize it or not, they are. For those listeners that we have right now that don't know, one of those threads that you're hanging on with and a moral choice you're making is a solo show. Yeah. <laughs> you're out here with this show. We were hoping you could talk about how you came up with the title. We want to let you let you explain it. It's so clever. And what, what your attendees can expect. So the show is, um, I call it a solo show because it's not straight stand-up. It's conceptual. There's a theatrical element to it. And it's called Going Up. And it's a fake seminar on how to make it in the comedy business. And I take on the role of like this guru, Tony Robbins, Scientology type uh, leader. And yes. I'm in, indoctrinating you into the cult of comedy and all the things that um, go into making it as a comedian. None of it has anything to do with being funny or not. <laughs> That's like sort of my premise. Secondary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it, the title going up is is short term lingo amongst comedians for going on stage and performing. So when we're talking to each other, we'll say, hey, are you going up tonight? Are you getting up? You know, and that's uh, just a lingo that comedians use. And I thought, oh, that really works well when you combine it with a, uh, a multi-level marketing uh, culty where there are levels and you're going up towards ascending towards the light, towards stardom, <laughs> you know, like, and so yep. like, my show goes into all that, but really it's like a, um, under the surface, it's like a letter to myself when I was younger, um, telling my younger self, all the things I wish I had known when I started out, you know, cause I started out, like I was saying earlier, I wanted, was just focused on being creative, being funny. And then I uh, realized, oh, there's a lot more to this <laughs> that has nothing to do with being funny that <laughs> I wish I had known. So this, it's a real, um, it's like a reckoning with the comedy business. And I'm, I'm really pushing a, a, to me, what feels like a risky, vulnerable statement on it. And it's been an amazing project and I'm now touring it more widely after working on it for a year. And I'm, I've, I honestly, I have very few things in my life that I've been as proud of as I am this show. So I hope people will come. We are so excited. We'll make sure folks know in the show notes where you can find and book tickets. Thank you. And also you talk about being proud of that, but also your credentials include being a... <clears throat> miniaturist, uh, yes. which also is, we could see you've kind of incorporated into the new show. Can you talk about that and particularly about your Etsy shop? Yes. So I um, have been a lifelong miniature enthusiast, dollhouses. I'm sorry, what is that? <laughs> I have been a lifelong miniature enthusiast. I have um, collected miniatures, dollhouse stuff. And then um, during the pandemic, I became obsessed with creating my own miniatures. And I even made a miniature comedy club in, in 112 scale. It's tiny. And that sort of, in a way, it, it, it was uh, inspired my solo show because it became a, a meditation on comedy clubs and my place in it. It literally gave me perspective. <laughs> Drinking everything down just gave you a good perspective. It does. It does. And it gives you a sense of control. But yeah, I um I love miniatures. I love uh how cute they are, but also the the magic and the art that goes into it, the building, the creativity. And I've have incorporated them into 
my show, which is crazy. I never, when I started the show, it had no miniatures in it and then it developed into it. And I've now combined all my interests into one place and my Etsy <laughs> shop. amazing. Yeah. My Etsy shop, I just started selling a, 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 my first handmade miniature by me. And it's a little miniature evidence board, like, you know, in a show where there's a conspiracy theorist and they're, they've got red string connecting all the pieces of evidence and they're solving a murder. I've made a miniature, one of those that you can buy. <laughs> Are you going to make a miniature evidence shed to put it in? Because that was a <laughs> yeah, it shed. It needs a shed to go with it. Um, yeah, it, that came from my stand up. I had a whole joke about that stuff, and I was like, "Oh my god, I could make a miniature version of that." And um, it, I love combining all that. I um grew up and enjoyed Polly Pockets, and oh, I yeah. really like. I feel like you took that concept and gave it teeth. You're like, "All right, Polly." Well, Polly went to school for a little bit. She's over here with her murder board. I I love the the different creative aspects your comedy and your narration and storytelling takes Thank to you. tell the whole story. Thank you. Yeah, that was kind of what was funny about also the how to sell a TV show in three easy steps. And it was like 40 easy steps. And I was like, oh, this <laughs> yeah. joke is really specific. <laughs> yeah. the, the video I made of uh, how to sell a show in three steps I literally was in the midst of like being rejected on a show at that moment. And I was frustrated with the process. And so I just straight up told you how it works. And that is, was funny in itself. And then it, um, I didn't think many people would appreciate that video. And I was shocked at how, how wide it spread. And even like amongst extremely famous, successful people were sharing it. And I was like, oh man, we're all in the same shit, you know, <laughs> like in Hollywood. Um, and it was crazy. Well, I feel See? like it also has a lot of the elements of what you said about your solo show in that this, this is like, you know, there's so many steps, there's so many little bits to it. And like, if you, if you scale back and look at it, you're like, oh, this, I don't know, this is just, I feel yeah. like I'm rambling in my thought here, but those kind of came together in my head when I was talking. I love that as a bird's eye approach though, to like organize, like mm -hmm. it's such a, like, I don't know if it's even left brained, but it's such a different, different way to look at it. Well, and it's like, it's taking what is an extremely nebulous, or I don't know if that's the right word, but an extremely um, unknowable, intangible path laid before us. Um, it's like, all of America is like this, like you can be a billionaire, <laughs> and then and the steps are and it's all gaslighting you yep. know i'm not, not to overuse the term but it's all like oh it's easy you just do this and this and this and none of it it's all a lie and so um i play with that a lot uh my character in the show is like the queen of gaslighting <laughs> so I'm so happy that you could join us here today. We wanted to remind folks listening that in addition to everything else you do and are working on, you've won two Emmys for your work, Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. And talk about an environment you have tons of guests coming through. Have you met cool folks? Have you made cool connections? That, who'd you fangirl over? Oh my God. Like the most. Because I won Emmys for like being the digital media team. And, and that show was very innovative in how it approached online social media stuff. And they're still doing it to this day. And I felt very proud that I was part of it at the beginning of the show. But um, I got to run down to the green rooms and like film little interviews with every guest. So I met like everybody. And I think one of my favorites was Molly Shannon. She gave me advice that I'll never forget. 
Um, I loved her so much. And when I met John Hamm, I floated out of the room. <laughs> I watched him on TV. I float. <laughs> much more gorgeous in person you, than you could imagine. Impossible. Um, his eyes are sparkling. Um, but yeah, the, um, I mean, there's that's off the top of my head. It was such a magical, cool experience to be part of that show in the beginning, especially. Oh my gosh, uh, Sarah, that's actually an excellent way to end this interview. Thank you so much for joining us and talking to us. From your car, like a professional. Yeah, I'm on the road. Yes. I'm a road dog. Thank you guys so much. Bye. Bye. For tour dates, follow Sarah Schaefer on Instagram and go to her link tree for all things tour info. That's our show. Thank you so much to Paris Hatcher from Black Feminist Future for joining us today. We hope you'll attend Get Free, become a member of Black Feminist Future, and donate to their work at the links in our show notes. Thank you so much for listening. You can support our pod by taking a minute to subscribe, write a review, and give us five stars. With your help, we can get more people to learn about this assault on abortion access. Again, follow us on all the socials at Abortion Front to keep up on all the latest Repro news. And looking for where you might fit in to do some abortion activism? Check out our five-part activist series, Operation Save Abortion at OperationSaveAbortion.com. The series is available in pod and video form. And make sure you check out the activist calendar that's attached to it, which is chock full of local and national actions and educational opportunities. One of the featured events coming up on our activist calendar, All Options is offering a new public online training for counselors, faith leaders, social workers, and anyone interested in learning more about offering spiritual support to people making pregnancy decisions. This online training will be held in three parts throughout May, and the deadline to sign up is May 9th. The link for that is in our show notes. And the pod is going to be dark next week, but the following week, we'll be joined by Christine Harley, CEO of Secus, Sex Ed for Social Change, and comedian Irene too joins us to chat about her big they energy tour dates. Join our Patreon. You'll support great content and get cool FBK merch and experiences. All pledges support this pod and all our activism at Abortion Access Front. Pledge at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills. FBK is edited by Remy Tournay and is produced by Abortion Access Front. And finally, we leave you with Steven Crowder showing his whole ass and no, we're not changing our minds by revealing that he doesn't know being publicly unlikable is grounds enough for divorce. My then wife decided that she didn't want to be married anymore. And in the state of Texas, that is completely permitted. It's been the most heartbreaking experience of my life. What I consider to be my deepest personal failure. And just so you know, my opinions on parenting and families have not changed. Um, I've always believed that children need a mom and a dad, that divorce is horrible. And I still believe that children need a mom and a dad and that divorce is horrible. But in today's legal system, my beliefs don't matter. In Texas, divorce is permitted when one party wants it, period. Feminist Buzzkills, the podcast from Abortion Access Front. New episodes drop Friday. When BS is popping, we pop off. And if you want to support our podcast and all the work of Abortion Access Front, like, subscribe, and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills.